Memorial Day has always held a special place in my family's history. My dad was a United States Marine who was an Iwo Jima survivor. My mom was an Army nurse. So when it came to Memorial Day weekends, we were required, <laughs> encouraged as family to participate in the ceremonies that honored those who had sacrificed so much. Both of my parents knew and had experienced the cost that's paid for our freedom. I grew up understanding the phrase that all gave some and some gave all. And as I was thinking about that whole concept this week and Memorial Day, I was reminded of the story of Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss was a pacifist who became a combat medic. He was the first conscientious objector who was awarded the Medal of Honor for service above and beyond the call of duty. If you've seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge, you know his story. A man who sacrificed much to accomplish much on behalf of others. Hacksaw Ridge was a cliff that ran across the middle of the island of Okinawa. And somewhere between April the 26th and May the 6th, 1945, during this battle on Hacksaw Ridge, where many American soldiers had lost their lives, many more had been wounded, on this one particular night when all of the soldiers who were capable had retreated to safety for the evening, Desmond Doss stayed up on top of this ridge. And he searched out, located, found, dressed the wounds, and then lowered 75 men, propelled them down on a rope propeller through this 350-foot high cliff. For that sacrifice, for that passion, for that care, Desmond Doss was awarded the Medal of Honor. And as passionate as Doss was for the lives of his fellow soldiers... Can I declare to you this morning that God is even more passionate about you? God searches us out to rescue us from certain death. And you don't have to believe me. You can just look at the words of Scripture. For in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories, three parables. These three stories declare God's passionate pursuit of us. Now, for most of us, we're familiar with these stories. We call them the parables of the lost. There's the lost sheep, there's the lost coin, and there's the lost son. But at the heart of each one of these stories is the passion of the searcher, the obsession of the one who searches for that which was lost. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, these Three stories that Jesus tells have a context, as most of the stories that he tells. And the context for these three stories about lostness and the passion of the searcher are found in the offense that's taken by the religious leaders of his day. Specifically, the offense that's taken in reference to the people to whom Jesus is spending time with and eating with. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. 
both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, we have a tendency to skip over this section pretty quickly to get on to the stories because we think of tax collectors, well, that's just the IRS and sinners, that's those really immoral people. But stop for a moment and recognize that in Jewish culture, tax collectors in Jesus' day were primarily Jewish folks who had volunteered their services to the Roman government to collect taxes on behalf of the government. Now, the Roman government was more than glad to have Jewish folks collect taxes from other Jewish folks, from their fellow countrymen. But for the Jewish tax collectors, from their perspective, this was an opportunity to make a living. Because let's say, for illustration's sake, the tax on your property that you owned was $10. You don't get, like today, you'll get an assessment in the mail. It'll tell you what your property is worth and how much taxes you owe. They didn't have mail. They didn't send out any tax assessment. So when the tax collector would show up at the door, he wouldn't tell them that the tax on their property was $10. He'd tell them the tax on their property was $15. That way he could pocket the five and give the 10 to the Roman government. So these tax collectors were known as extortionists. They were traitors to their fellow countrymen. These are the people that Jesus is associating with and that tax collectors are also combined with a group that's called sinners. This is a broad perspective of people. Could have been there were immoral people that were there. There were probably some irreligious people that were there. But for the most part, these people were most likely simply ceremonially unclean. That is, they weren't allowed to come into the temple. They didn't keep the law the same way the Pharisees and scribes did. They couldn't measure up to the standards that were set before them. They were sinners. This group, tax collectors and sinners, may mean little to us, so let me give you a picture in modern day what that might look like of who would be sitting before Jesus. Politicians from both sides of the aisle. Homeless. Those struggling with addictions of various kinds. And you. That's the people that are sitting before Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees object. Not so much that these people listened to Jesus. What really bothered them was that this crowd, some in this crowd, was inviting Jesus home to dinner and Jesus was accepting. See, to break bread with someone, to come into their home of that day and to break bread with them, signified that you were accepting them as brothers and sisters. You were pleased to be in their home. They were part of your, quote, extended family, unquote. And that really miffed the Pharisees and scribes. Because what mattered to them was legal holiness. What mattered to them was purity. And how could Jesus who had already proclaimed himself to be God, who had already proclaimed himself to be holy and righteous, actually be that if he spent time with and entered into the homes of and ate with sinners and tax collectors. So the text says they grumbled. 
Literally, that word grumbled means they were indignant and complaining. And in response to the criticism of the religious leaders, Jesus tells these three stories. Stories that, from our perspective, we usually focus on the lostness of the object. You know, whether it's the sheep or the coin or the sun. But this morning, what I would rather for us do is to focus not so much on what was lost, but on the passion, even the obsession of the searcher to find what was lost. What extent did the shepherds go through in order to find the lost sheep? What extent did the woman go through in order to find the lost coin? What extent did the father go through in order to find the lost son? And what does that tell us about God's passion for us? Each story describes lostness. Each story describes the excitement that comes in the finding, not by the object, but the excitement by the one who's done the finding. And yet in each story, the major point is the description of the celebration on behalf of the, of the searcher because of his experience of finding that which was lost. Let's look at the searching shepherd, verses 3 through 7. So Jesus told them a parable, a story. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. 100 sheep, one is lost. The sheep has wandered away. That is not an uncommon experience for a shepherd. Sheep are prone to wander. This particular sheep has wandered off. He's now no longer part of the hundred. He's lost. So Jesus asks a question. If you were the shepherd and you had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered away, would you leave the ninety and nine to go after the one? Now, if Jesus had paused and stopped and asked for a response from his audience, most of them, tax collectors, sinners, general, would have said, no, you know, you just cut your losses. I still have 99. Why am I going to risk the 99 to go after the one? So Jesus says, but that's not what he did. The story emphasizes the apparent recklessness of the shepherd who puts the whole flock at risk in order to find one single sheep. The priorities of the shepherd surprise us, as does the response. Because when he comes home, having found the sheep, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Can you visualize the smiles on behalf of all the fellow shepherds and the friends? Because they've all experienced that. They knew what it was like to lose the sheep and to find him. 
So they rejoice with him, they clap their hands, they share, they throw a party, if you will, on behalf of the shepherd who had lost the sheep that has now been found. Is the party for the sheep or is the party for the shepherd? The sheep could care less. The party's for the shepherd. Jesus says, heaven then is like those applauding shepherds. Shepherds who, from the religious people's perspective, are unclean and are outcasts. They're not allowed into the temple because they hang around all day with dirty animals. So what are the religious leaders thinking when Jesus connects shepherds and heaven? End of story. Jesus tells a second story. Or, because he just moves right along. I've told you one story. Let me illustrate again, he said, what I'm trying to communicate. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Question number one, what is the status of women in Jesus's day? Were they highly esteemed? Were they given positions of authority and privilege? No. At best, women in Jesus's day were second-class citizens with minimal, if any, rights. So now Jesus not only has told a story about shepherds who are considered unclean and outcast, he now tells the story about women who aren't elevated or esteemed either. And he tells a story about a woman who's lost a coin. Okay, ladies, you can identify with this because I know all of you have lost something in the bottom of your purse. You know it's in there. You are diligently searching through that purse and you cannot find it, and as a last resort, what do you do? You turn it upside down and dump everything out, and you're thinking, how come they make such big purses and they don't have enough pockets to put everything in it so I can keep track of everything that I own? So you know what it's like to lose something. This woman has lost one of her 10 silver coins. The monetary value is about 10 days wages. It's a drachma, about one day, each coin is about a day's wage. So while it's significant, the monetary value is not huge. What's of value is the relational value, the sentimental value, because these 10 coins most likely represent either her dowry or the gift from her husband at her betrothal and marriage. This is the most precious gift she's ever been given because it signifies the most precious relationship that she has. And her husband has given to this and so she values this. And so she's got to find this one lost coin at any cost. So the text says that she lights a lamp and begins to sweep the floor. The floors in those days in their homes were covered with straw. So imagine 
lighting a lantern and putting it down on the floor next to the dry straw and then she begins to sweep it away or part it with her hands. Might this be just slightly dangerous? Might she have been putting her whole household at risk to find her one lost coin? She turns the house upside down. She searches diligently and she's probably again on her hands and knees Everything else is neglected until she finds that which was lost. How long did that take? How hard was it? What was she thinking? Then, with a shriek of delight, she holds up the coin, and instead of simply being relieved and putting it back into a safe place, or a safer place than it was before, She goes out and tells all of her friends, hey, look how irresponsible I've been. I've lost the coin, but I've been able to find it. So let's have a party. Would you rejoice with me? We're going to celebrate. Again, does the coin care? Is the celebration for the coin? No. The celebration on behalf of the woman who has diligently, passionately searched for that which she has lost. Heaven, says Jesus, verse 10, is like the party that this woman threw when she found what was lost. What in the world must the religious leaders be thinking? Sheep, shepherds, coins, and women. Parties in heaven? But Jesus isn't finished. He saves the best and most profound for last. The searching father, what we call the lost son. Charles Dickens called this the greatest short story of all time. And Jesus develops the story. He gives texture and contrast and drama. We t- again, we tend to focus on the son who leaves and the sins that he commits and the return that he gives. But at the center of the story, at the center of the story is the father who passionately seeks the return of the son. Now, he may not do, from our perspective, much, but he is the hero of the story, if you will. The story begins in verse 11. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Again, a reminder, Jewish law was clear. If a father had two sons, one older and one younger, then at the death of the father, the estate passed to the oldest son, two-thirds, to the youngest son, one-third. That was the law and the practice in in Jesus' day. The older son got two-thirds, the younger son got a third, but only at the death of the father. So you know what the younger son is actually saying when he goes to his father and says, give me my third? Dad, I wish you were dead so I can get what I want. Now, if you were the father, this is your opportunity to slap him upside the head and give him the, read him the riot act and tell him what's really important. 
But amazingly enough, the father grants the request. Is he foolish or is he gracious? Because to accomplish the task of giving a third of his wealth to his son would require him to sell off a third. A third of his cattle, maybe a third of his land. What do you suppose the neighbors are thinking? What are the friends of the family wondering about? Son leaves, takes his inheritance. After a short period of time, he gathered everything together. Verse 13, he went on a journey into a distant country and he wasted it. He squandered his estate with loose living. Isn't that a great phrase? Loose living, whatever that might mean. He squandered it. He wasted it. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and that man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods the swine were eating for no one was giving anything to him. Whatever the monetary value of the estate that he got doesn't matter because he wasted it all. He squandered it. And now he had nothing. A famine has occurred. He decides the best thing he can do is get a job. He's probably in a Gentile land because now a Jewish boy is taking care of the pigs. And he's so hungry that he thinks, I'm just going to eat the pig slop. That's the best I can do. And then the text says, as Jesus tells the story, verse 17, he came to his senses. Now, we often see that statement as if the son has had insight into his condition and he is repentant. I'm going to suggest to you that there's no repentance here at all. And that the son is simply trying to save his proverbial rear. And here's why. Notice what the son says to himself. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I'm dying here with hunger? So he thinks back to his former home. And he doesn't think of himself as a son. He thinks of himself as a servant. He says, my father's servants have more to eat than I do. So here's what I'm going to do. I'll get up, I'll go to my father, I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. The son says, just, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to tell my father that I've failed, I've sinned, and I just want to be a servant. I want you to hold on to that thought for a minute. I'm going to read a text from Exodus chapter 10, where after the plague of locusts had covered the land of Egypt, this is what Pharaoh says to Moses. Note these words. Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, I've sinned against God and against you. Therefore, please forgive my sin only and make supplication to the Lord, your God, that he would only remove this death from me. 
Did you catch the similarity between the words of Pharaoh and the words of the son? Was the Pharaoh repentant? Had the Pharaoh come to faith? Not a chance. The Pharaoh is trying to save his life. He's interested in only one thing, getting rid of the locust so he can go back to living the way he wanted to live. And I'd like to suggest to you that the son is thinking only of working his way back into his father's good graces and then maybe he might be able to pay off his debt. It's a works-oriented approach to a relationship with his father. I'll just go back and I'll try to be a good servant and I'll get back into my father's good graces. The prodigal is simply trying to save himself. The father, however, has no intention of receiving payment, does he? His intention is to give grace. Notice verse 20. The son gets up and he comes to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion for him. He ran. He embraced him. He kissed him. The father had diligently been searching every day for the return of his son. Every day he looked down that road that led up to their home. Every day he gazed intently to see if this was the day the son would return. And on this day, having seen the return of his son, recognizing him from a distance, he doesn't stand there with his arms crossed and say, about time. Now, it's payback. No, the father rushes down the path, runs toward the son, feels compassion for the son, embraces the son, kisses the son, welcomes the son literally back into the family. He gives grace to the son. If the sincerity of the son is ambiguous, there can be no mistake about the heart of the father. He meets the boy in stride. He enfolds him in full acceptance and embrace and literally takes the son's humiliation upon himself. So that David Jeremiah, in his book, Captured by Grace, summarizes it this way. It took the obsessive love of the searcher for the lost thing to be redeemed. In that moment, grace takes him captive. See, in the response of the father, in the giving of grace is literally to throw a party the likes of which had never been seen in that country before. The father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, verse 22. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He's lost and he's been found. And they begin to celebrate. The best robe is the father's robe. So the father takes his robe and he gives it to his son, indicating that the son is now welcomed back into the family. The ring was a symbol that was used to conduct business on behalf of the family. So that in those days, when contracts were made, the signet ring, the ring that belonged to a family, would be dipped in wax and then placed 
on the document, signifying that they're in agreement with this contract, with this document. So the ring that's given to the son is a symbol that the son is now called to conduct business on behalf of the father and the family. Would you give to your son who had wasted all of your money the responsibility to do business on your behalf? The best robe, the ring, and sandals. Sandals signifies the fact that the son is the son because only family members wore shoes. The slaves were barefoot. So the son who has wasted everything, squandered it all, returns and the father gives him a robe, gives him a ring, gives him sandals, and then takes the fatted calf and throws a party. Here is the deepest expression of sheer joy, the best course for the happiest of events. The passion of the father has won over the rebellion of the son. But there's an elder son, isn't there? He is not near as happy about his brother's return as the father is. Matter of fact, verse 28, he became angry. He's not willing to go to the party. So the father comes out and pleads for him to come in. He answered and said to his father, look, for many years I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command. I've done everything you've asked. You've never given a party for me. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but your son, the one who devoured your wealth with prostitutes and killed it, you've killed the fatted calf with him. How could you do that? How dare you do that? And the father gives as much grace to the elder son as he gives to the younger. He says in verse 31, son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he's been found. Jesus told three stories. A trilogy. I suspect at the end of this third story, although the text doesn't say it, that Jesus paused and looked at the crowd. Before and around him were prodigals, sinners, tax collectors, and a few self-righteous people. Could God really be like that shepherd? Could God really be like that woman? Or unbelievably so, could God really be like that father? Does heaven really celebrate? when a lost sinner comes to faith in Christ. Again, let me quote from David Jeremiah's book, Captured by Grace, because David said, here's the answer to the question. The rescue of one lost soul is worth more than the gold of a billion galaxies. Therefore, it's cause for angelic celebration. 
The rescue of one lost soul brings the creator of the universe himself thundering down the path to embrace you. It sets off a celebration that never ends. It restores the lost soul to its family. It affords the soul the right to transact work for the kingdom. It invites the reign of love and grace so that no sin you've ever committed even enters the equation. The passion of the Father for the lost. So questions for you this morning. If you've never experienced that kind of passion from God the Father, you've never experienced the love of God in Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, the security of an eternal home from heaven, God offers to you that gift. So whether you're watching online or whether you're here in this building today, the scriptures offer you the gift of life. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. He gave it all to rescue us from the domain of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of light. And he says, you receive that gift by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift where you receive the gift. This morning, wherever you might be, God says, I'm passionate about you. Maybe you're one of those folks who has made that commitment. You've trusted in Christ and it's been years ago. But you've lost that sense of closeness and fellowship with God. You've sinned. Maybe you've sinned big time. And you really doubt whether the Father of Heaven still loves you. And so you're thinking in your head, if I just can get my act together, if I could just do some of the right things, maybe the Father will accept me and I can be forgiven. Do you know the Father is waiting to embrace you with great forgiveness? Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, the church that had become lukewarm, that was no longer walking in fellowship with him, and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and what? Do you know what the text says? I will dine with him. I'm going to break bread with you, says Jesus, because you're part of the family. We're going to celebrate together when you return from your dark days. The love of the Father is passionate about you. Maybe you've lost your love for him. The demands and struggles of life have gotten the best of you. You're tired, you're weary, you're struggling. The shepherd's seeking for you as well and he wants to throw a party on your behalf. Will you allow yourself to be found? Remember. Remember that you are worth more to God than the gold of a billion galaxies. He's seeking you. He's watching over you. And he desires to be with you and to bring to you levels of joy beyond your greatest experience. Beyond your wildest imagination. Heaven is ready to celebrate. The angels enjoy rejoicing. So any sinner, whether for the first time or repeated time, returns to the Father who's wandered away, there's rejoicing. There's joy in the presence of God because the passion of the Father for the loss. God is passionate about you. So here's your one thing for this week. Take two minutes every day 
throughout this week and reflect upon the passionate pursuit of God for you and how that extreme love influences your lifestyle. Do I need to repent? Do I need to praise? Do I need to do both? Because the passionate pursuit of the Father desires to be with you. Let's pray together. Father, these are familiar stories. It's easy for us to overlook them and say, yeah, I know what that says. So Lord, by the power of your spirit, through the ministry that you've given to us and the truth of your word and the fellowship that we have together, Father, I pray that you would just um, remind us of how passionate you are for us, how all-consuming your obsession and love for us is, enable us to rejoice in you, to revel in your boundless love for us so that as we walk out into the world in which we live, Father, we can be your representatives who live out the love of Christ in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.